Um, it, is, it is a joy to be with you guys and to continue to lead us in worship as we open God's Word together. My name is C.T. Eldridge, one of the pastors here, um, and uh, we have been walking through our Christmas sermon series called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a title or a name for God's Messiah that the prophet Isaiah first used. In Isaiah chapter 7, uh, the prophet told God's people that there would be a coming king whose name would be Emmanuel. And uh, this Hebrew name literally means God with us. The coming Messiah was God with us. And, and this name, this title, and what it means really separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is about you and I ascending to God by trying to be a good person. Every other religion is about you and I trying to earn God's favor by being a faithfully religious person. But this is in exact contradiction to the gospel that Jesus preached, which was not that we ascend to God or we earn God's favor. No, it's that He has descended to us. He has come to us in the person of Christ Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus did what we could not do. Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness and love and joy, and then He died the death that we deserved so that then we could be made acceptable into God's family so that then we could be redeemed from the power of sin, which is what we're going to talk about today. So praise God for Emmanuel, that he is among us. He is our Savior God. We've been looking throughout the New Testament, and today we are in Galatians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, Galatians is kind of buried in the middle of the New Testament. Uh, right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and we're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he's going to mention that in the fullness of time, at the climax of history, God sent forth His Son, being born of a woman, being born under the law. And so let's uh, flesh this out as we read all these verses, and then we'll walk through it more slowly together. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though the heir is the owner of everything. But the heir is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is little doubt that the most cherished value for Americans is freedom. 
When our national anthem is sung, it's the climactic point of the song where we add this prolonged note, or the land of the free. And the home of the brave part is secondary at best because we really love freedom. Perhaps our obsession with freedom relates to our history under the English King George. Listen to this last sentence, uh, last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. When we declared our freedom, when we declared our independence from Britain, the founders said this, quote, We, the representatives of the United States of America, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. So it's right there in our origin story, this fight, this appeal for freedom. And so today there are political groups called the Freedom Caucus, and there's a famous political activist group called the Freedom Riders, and every good American's favorite line from the movie Braveheart is when William Wallace slash Mel Gibson cries out, freedom, because we are a freedom-loving people. But as is often the case when we read the Bible, it challenges our assumptions. Scripture challenges our conventional wisdom. And when it comes to the issue of freedom, what Scripture asks us is, are we actually free? Are we free in the way that matters most to be free? We may have freedom of speech, we may have freedom to bear arms, but are we free from the enslaving power of sin? Well, this morning, to explore this question, we're looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The letter of Galatians was written by an early church leader named Paul. He was a missionary who traveled around the Mediterranean Sea planting churches And one of the churches he planted was in a city called Galatia. You can still visit this city today. After he planted the church in Galatia, he left to go start planting other churches. But in this letter, he's writing back to the church in Galatia and giving them further instruction in the gospel. And in today's passage, he's sharing with the Galatians how they can find true and lasting freedom through Jesus. And so the question we're asking as we walk through these verses is how? How can we experience God's freedom in Jesus? That's the question we're asking as we work our way back through these seven verses. And the first thing Paul is going to say is that if we are to experience true freedom, God's freedom in Jesus, then we must recognize our condition. We must recognize our condition. And to help us understand our enslaved condition, Paul uses an analogy related to family inheritance. So normally when we think of an heir to an estate, we think of a very privileged person. So for example, Bill Gates, one of the wealthiest people in the world, he has three children who presumably are the heirs to his estate. They will inherit his wealth. So we often think of heirs to a fortune like this as very privileged, very elite. 
But Paul makes the point here in verse 1 that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. In other words, until the appointed time, a child heir has no more advantages than a household slave. The heir can't spend the money he will inherit. The heir can't sell off the property that he will inherit because he hasn't inherited it yet. And so Paul says, until then, he's no different from a slave. Instead, verse 2, Paul says that the heir is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So one New Testament scholar notes about these guardians and managers that they would, quote, manage the child's household and estate until he came of age. The guardian would clothe the child, provide for his schooling. The minor could not act independently. So again, the heir is no different from a slave until the time of inheritance. These guardians and managers of the state would care for the child and also regulate the child until the appointed time. The situation with these guardians and managers of an estate over the child heir of an estate, it isn't too much different than the situ situation when I hire a babysitter to watch my children. So the babysitter does not own my house, and my children are the heirs of my money and property. But my children, despite being the heirs of my house, are not in charge when my babysitter comes over. Instead, my children have to be guarded and managed to a great degree, and they don't have any right to tell the babysitter what to do, even though they are the future heirs of the place. Paul says... We were in a similar situation before Christ came into our lives. We were not as free as we thought we were. Instead, in verse 3, he says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So this is how little freedom and independence we had before Christ came into our lives. We were enslaved to what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. And I think the best way we can understand this phrase is to simply think of it as the things of the world. In other words, the elementary principles of the world are things not related to the elevated principles of heaven. Being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world means that we try to find life in the things of earth instead of the God of heaven. Being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world means that we try to find meaning and hope and joy in the things of earth instead of the God of heaven. So what does this look like in your life? Maybe you are enslaved to money and you can only achieve security in life in relation to how much money is in your bank account. Maybe you are enslaved to people and what they think about you, and you can only achieve love in relation to how well you are thought of by others. Maybe you are enslaved to your career, and you can only achieve meaning and purpose in relation to your achievements and advancements at work. 
Listen, money is a good thing, relationships are a good thing, work is a good thing, but we must not make them God things. We can make earthly things ultimate things, and that's when we become enslaved. We become controlled by money, by people, by work, because that's where we're trying to find security and love and purpose. The apostle calls it being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the truth is that we cannot experience the freedom offered to us in Christ until we recognize our enslaved condition. Scripture challenges us that we are not as free as we think we might be. And so again, I ask you, what is it for you? What does it look like in your life to be enslaved to the things of the world? But once we've made this humbling admission, once we've been honest with ourselves about our enslaved status, Paul will then urge us to trust in God's saving action. Trust in God's saving action. So previously, Paul shared how an heir is no better than a slave until the date set by his father. And similarly, before Christ comes into our lives, we are without freedom. Rather, as we said, we are enslaved to the base elementary things of the world. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, it was then that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this right here, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is the truth of Christmas in one verse. God sent forth His Son, Jesus. And God sent forth His Son, Jesus, not in a majestic, indescribable revelation of the divine. No, Paul says that God sent Jesus born of woman, born under the law. This means that He became like us. He was a man with a mom. He was a citizen under the law. Then in verse 5, Paul shares the purpose, why God sent His Son. It was, quote, to redeem those who were under the law. So redemption is an economic term, and to redeem means to pay a price for someone's freedom. This payment also can be known as a ransom. And most often what would happen in the case of slave is a payment would be made to a slave's owner. There were many slaves in the Roman Empire at the time Paul wrote this letter. And so a slave would save up his money and then pay a redemption price, pay a ransom price to his owner, thus redeeming or ransoming or freeing himself through this cost. So maybe you've heard of this, but uh, an increasing threat to our digital security is what's known as ransomware ransomware. This is a type of software that hackers and other cyber thieves will use to lock us out of our computers or block us from our online accounts until we pay a ransom, hence the name ransomware. The idea is that we're held hostage, we're captured until a price is paid for our freedom. And according to one report, in 2022, there were 500 million ransomware cases, so this year, maybe New Year's resolution, mix up your passwords a little bit. Don't, don't use the same one over and over. But it's this idea of redeeming someone. It's this idea of paying a ransom for someone that Paul uses here. 
And he says that God would pay the price for our redemption. God paid the price with the life of his own son. God sent forth his son to redeem us from the enslaving power of sin. Listen to the way Jesus puts it in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says about himself that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why is Jesus' life as a sacrifice able to free us from enslavement to sin? Well, it's because on the cross, Jesus suffered the full weight of sin's curse so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus completely absorbed the unleashed power of sin on the cross so that when we trust in Jesus, the power of sin can be broken over our lives. And so we are thus liberated from sin's power. And when we are redeemed by Jesus, we are then free from the shame of sin. When we are then redeemed by Jesus, we are free from the condemnation of sin. When we are redeemed by Jesus, we are free to live the lives before God that we were meant to live. Lives of trust and obedience and love towards our Creator God. Listen to the way another one of the early Christian leaders put it. This is from a man named Peter. He wrote the book in the New Testament called First Peter, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 24 of that book. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to the power of sin and thus by the power of God live to righteousness. You see, when we trust in Jesus, the power of sin starts to die in our lives and we can start to live in righteousness. We can never live righteous lives on our own. This is what every other religion has proven for us. We cannot live a righteous life on our own, but when our sin is paid for on, our, on the cross, when we're liberated from sin's power through the cross, then we can start to walk in freedom and liberation and righteousness. And so I have to ask, have you put your trust in Jesus the good news of Jesus is that he lived and died and rose so that we could be delivered from the enslaving power of sin. But good news as it is, that good news calls for a response. And the required response is simply to trust in what he's done. Abandon all efforts to save yourself, forsake all all allegiance to other gods and sin and put your trust in what he has done for you through the cross. That's how we can begin to experience true and lasting freedom. First, we must recognize our enslaved condition. Then we must trust in God's saving action to free us. And then, praise God, we get to receive adoption. Receive God's adoption. So if redemption is an economic term, then adoption is a relational or familial term. And Paul here teaches that once redeemed, verse 7, not only are we merely no longer slaves, but we are now sons and daughters. 
You see, God redeems us not merely because he pities us as slaves. No, he redeems us because he loves us as his children. He wants to welcome us into his family and to then confirm in our hearts that we are his children. Verse 6 tells us that God sent forth his Holy Spirit into our hearts, and it's by that Spirit that we now cry out to God, Abba, Father. And so, friend, Paul here is describing a relationship. He's describing a living, breathing, active relationship with the God of the universe because through redemption in Christ, we are then adopted into God's family. One of the things that often frustrates parents is that their children will behave better for other people than they will for them, their parents. So you may have had a terrible morning getting ready for church, Your child is defiant and impatient and whining. But then after church, you go to kids' ministry and their teacher goes on and on about what a delight your child is. They're so well-behaved. They're so respectful. And when parents of these kids hear these kinds of reports after bad behavior at home, it can make you want to accuse the teacher, liar! Like, no, I was with my kids this morning. They are terrible. But psychologists have picked up on this, and they've studied this phenomenon. And here's the conclusion from one article by a pediatric psychologist. She says this, quote, All of this bad behavior from our kids is reserved for us, their parents, their safe people who love them unconditionally. So it is actually a compliment if your child misbehaves for you, but behaves for everyone else. It's because they feel safe and know you will love and protect them no matter what." End quote. You see, children are meant to feel inherently safe with their parents. And because they feel safe, they feel free to act out whatever they're feeling on the inside. And oftentimes that means bad behavior. And conversely, they don't always feel safe with other non-parental adults. And so they curb their behavior in order to be accepted. Now, I bring this up not to advocate for bad childish behavior. But I bring this up to highlight the safety and the freedom we are meant to experience in relationship with God as our Father. When God is our Father through Christ, we experience the freedom of knowing that we are loved no matter how bad we screw up. When God is our Father through Christ, we experience the freedom of knowing that we are loved and cared for despite the worst possible trials we walk through in life. Knowing we're loved like this leads to freedom from shame. Knowing we're loved like this leads to freedom from anxiety. Freedom from shame. You think about this. Shame says to you, you are not worthy. You are unlovable. It's not just that you do bad things. It's that you are bad. It's your identity. That's what shame says. 
But the freedom held out to us in the gospel says, you are a son. You are a daughter. And when that identity lands and sinks into our hearts, we become free from the shame that stirred up through Satan's lies. Brother, sister, friend, I pray you would experience the shame-defeating grace of Christ. The shame-smothering knowledge that you are a beloved son or daughter in Christ. And what about anxiety? Anxiety speaks to you. Fear. Will you be cared for? Will there be enough? Will God come through? But the declaration of the gospel is that you're a son or daughter in Christ and God takes care of his children. He loves us more than we will ever know. This is the truth held out to us in the gospel. And so I call on you right now, embrace God's redemption in Jesus. When you are redeemed through Jesus, you can experience the freedom that matters most. Many of the freedoms we enjoy in this country, they're precious. The freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, for example. But friends, those freedoms can be taken away. In fact, many Christians throughout history and many Christians today around the world do not have those freedoms. But you know what? In Christ, they are more free than any unbelieving American. Because despite not having civil, civil liberties, we are still in bondage to sin apart from Christ. Despite having all the civil liberties we get to enjoy, we are still in bondage to the enslaving power of sin. We are still enslaved to money. We are still enslaved to other people. We are still enslaved to our work and what we can achieve apart from the redeeming power of Jesus' cross. And so I encourage you, embrace that cross through faith. Cling to it with your entire life through his death. You can be free from the power of sin and through his spirit, you can be adopted into God's family. I pray it would be so for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word and I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, Abba, Father, we come before you, adopted sons and daughters. We come before you, freed slaves, no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs. God, we praise you for this wonderful status of who we are in Christ. Beloved, freed, accepted, no matter what, no matter how bad we screw up. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Father, though it's true, we remain under the power of sin to some degree. Many of us completely stuck. 
many of us only slowing being freed from its power. And so we pray for a fresh sweep of your spirit across this place. We pray for a fresh outpouring of your liberating Holy Spirit to come now into our hearts and draw us to Christ. Draw us to his sacred wounds where our ransom was paid and fill us again with the knowledge of our identity in him. Sons, daughters, freed, loved, full, all through Jesus. God, we are grateful. We anticipate more and more of your mercy as we continue to sojourn with you, as we continue to move forward as a faith family into the new year. Thank you, God, that we get to ring this thing out with the hope of heaven. All glory and honor to you, our great God and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.